guest speaker today. His name is Dr. Randy Galuza. He is from the Institute for Creation Research, and he has just blessed us with his knowledge about creation um, um, all weekend long. And um, his partner, Dr. Hebert, is actually down in meeting room two. Some of you have signed up for electives. Those are happening during each service as well. Maybe after this, you're going down there. I don't know if you signed up or not. But um, this whole weekend has just been a very fascinating, fascinating weekend, and um, I think what he's going to share today will really touch your heart and, and give you a perspective that perhaps you haven't really thought much about before. So without any further ado, I'd like to invite Dr. Randy Galuzza. Let's give him a good New Life welcome this morning. Wow, we really have had a, a super weekend this weekend, and thank you, Pastor, so very much for the invitation to come and talk about this foundational truth of the doctrine of creation, which sets the basis for everything that we believe as a Christian. But how in the world did I get here today? Because unlike a lot of your kids, I had wonderful parents. That's oh, just a joke. Um, had, but, but I was going to say, I didn't grow up going to church, and I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Wonderful parents, just like your kids. But you're probably bringing your, church, your kids to church. But I didn't go. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God. I did believe in God, but I never went to church until this, the last semester of my senior year in high school, and then everything changed. And because up until that time, I was really addicted to a class. I don't even know if you can take it anymore these days, but I was a wood shop junkie. I, was, I just love wood shop. And even when I wasn't getting credit for it, the teacher was letting me come in at lunchtime, build things over lunchtime and go on my ways. So I was skipping lunch, and then in the last semester, the school board said, unless you were actually registered in Woodshop, you couldn't use the equipment for some kind of liability issues. So I had to do something that I hadn't done for almost five years, and that was go to lunch. And so I grabbed my little tray. I remember how to do that. And you go through the line. You remember this? They throw food in those little things. And I looked down, what's plopping in? I thought, wow, I haven't been missing much for five years on that. <laughs> But anyway, I get out, and we have a large high school, and there's tables around where all the students are sitting. So I'm a young guy with, young guy with my tray in my hand, and what am I looking for? Okay, here's the clue. I said, I'm a young guy with my tray in my hand, and I'm looking for a, a girl. There you go. It's coming back. All right, it's coming back. I'm looking for a girl. And so I look over the whole area, and I find a, a gal. I, I, she looks pretty good. So I take my tray, and I go, I go sit down next to her, and I start to talk with her and joke and tease and talk and joke and tease. And that's called what? Flirting. flirting. There you go. That's right. It is coming back. Well, so I, I flirted with her for several days. And gals, you probably figured this out by now. Guys always flirt for a purpose. There's a goal at the end of our flirting. We're not going to invest our time for nothing. So I, um, I flirted with her, and the goal was always to get the girl to say yes. doesn't matter what you ask her. You want to flirt, and you want her to say yes. So after flirting several days, I called her up, and I said, I'm going to date myself. Would you like to go roller skating with me on Friday night? Now, for young people, roller skates are shoes with wheels on the bottom of them <laughs> on there. And people used to do that because you could go and you could hold hands. Well, unbeknownst to me, this gal had become a Christian only about six months before then. And her Sunday school teacher had been telling her, you should only date Christian guys. But she didn't know the test for a Christian. 
She didn't know whether I was a Christian or not, so she threw out some little test, and she said, well, I'll go roller skating with you if you come to church with me on Sunday. And she thought if I said yes, that's because I was a Christian. I said, yes, I'll go. Not because I was a Christian, but because I thought, wow, guaranteed second date. I mean, this is like really, really easy. I'll go on Friday and I'll go to church with her on Sunday. And I went to church with her, and she had a solid Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that preached the gospel, and it went in one ear and out the other. But I still liked her, so I called her up again and said, would you like to go get pizza with me on Friday night? And she said, yes, if come to church on Sunday. I thought, whoa, what an easy way to get dates. I mean, this is so good. And they didn't hurt me in church, so I went in and went. And uh, I, I, so I took her out for pizza, got in the car, drove, parked in front of her house, turned off the car, looked at her. She looked at me, and she said, Randy, there's something I need to tell you. And I thought, ah, oh, she's going to tell me best guy she's ever dated, best time she's ever had, something with best in the sentence. It was going to be there. And she said, Randy, you're going to hell. <laughs> what is this? I'm going to hell. I said, I'm going to hell. Why is that? And she said, Randy, well, you're a sinner. Oh, I can't tell you. That really offended me. I was really proud. I said, no, I am not a sinner. Sinners are in prison. She said, no, you're a sinner. I said, I'm not. I obey my parents. I obey the law. I obey my teachers. Keyword being what? I, I, I. She said, well, you may be pretty good compared to other people, but I have no idea where she came with this question. She said, but do you have the righteousness of Christ? Righteousness of Christ. Who's got the righteousness of Christ but Christ? She said, I do. And I went, wow. You got the righteousness of Christ. I'm a sinner, and I bought the pizza. I mean, how in the world, how is this going to be? And then she explained the gospel to me. And I continued to date her, and I continued to go into church. And on every date, this flogging happened all the time. And then eventually from high school, she gave me a Bible. And she gave it to me in front of all my friends. And then she opened. She said, well, you know, you've been going to church with me, and you've been hearing a lot of preaching I've highlighted some verses I would really like you to think about. And one of them said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And by this time, after hearing the church and stuff, I realized, Randy, you really are a sinner. You really do say a lot of things you shouldn't be saying. You think a lot of things. You look at a lot of things you shouldn't be doing. The sinner part was there. A few verses, pages over, she had another one said, For the wages of sin is? death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I really struggled with this gift, gift, gift part. How could salvation be a gift? Because in my mind, I was convinced I had to do what? Something to earn God's favor. Something to merit it. It was this, it was this idea that I had to do some work to please him. And it was the gift part that I really struggled with. And then she had another verse highlighted a couple pages over. It said, for God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that's when the light went on. My guilt, my sin to him, his perfect holy righteousness 
to me by belief and by faith. And then another verse was highlighted where the Lord Jesus Christ said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And I realized I wanted that life. I needed his righteousness for me. And I got down on my knees in my living room and I said, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need that forgiveness and please come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. And I kid you not, when I got up, I was literally born again, born from above, regenerated from that point on. And that's how I got here today because some young gal was caring enough and loving enough to tell me what I needed to hear. So, be bold in your witness. You never know what life you're going to change. Now, whatever happened to that gal? <laughs> Miss, you're going to hell, you know? Well, I continued to date her, and I continued to flirt with her. And after about a year of really good flirting, I asked her, would you marry me? And she said, what? Yes, because I'm told you I'm a good flirter. And uh, <laughs> she said, yes, yes. She said, yes. We got married, and just this last year, we celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary together. Wow, what a blessing it is. So that's how I got here today to talk to you about made in his image, examining the complexities of the human body. Now, we're going to talk about a science talk, just a science talk today, because that's what my ministry is, and I have a hypothesis for you. Hypothesis is that worship should be the normal response to Science, science, great preaching, great singing, but science. Science is a gift from the Lord to us. And I know it's true because we say this verse here. I am what? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully, wonderfully made. That's true. I look at the audience and clearly some are more fearfully made than others. There's no doubt about it. But we never say the whole verse. The whole verse is, I will praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And my soul knows this greatly. My soul knows this greatly. So if science is done right, if science is presented right, you should feel like praising the Lord. But why is it that we don't always feel like praising the Lord? Because science isn't presented right. And maybe it's not even presented right at PBS. Surprise, surprise. Because every year they run this program called Becoming Human. Becoming Human, where they want to tell us, see how to become human in six million simple steps. Six million simple steps. Step number one, get out of tree. Two, grow big brain. Three, flee animals. Now, are any of those really simple? They're not simple, not simple at all. But they want to make you believe that simple changes made to simple things are true because that's believable. But complicated things are not. So getting out of a tree is not very simple at all. I'm standing here, I'm not walking on all fours, I'm out of a tree, and yet my center of gravity is way, way up here. I'm not tipping over, I'm not falling over. Try balancing a stick or something on your hand and doing that. That's because as I move around the stage, totally up subconsciously to me, I have thousands and thousands of sensors in my toes, feet, ankles, knees, in the joint capsules, in the muscles, in everything, and it's detecting every stress and strain on my body 
And it is sending millions of data points to my brain, back to my cerebellum, where they are processed every second, sending responses out saying, if you move this, stress this. If you move this way, flex this. And just try to get a robot to do that. That's an incredible mechanical achievement and programming achievement to do that. So get out of tree, even if it was true, would not be simple. Grow a big brain. Is that simple? <laughs> well, a lot of us have been working on that for a long time. <laughs> and it's just not that simple. And of course, flea animals. But their whole idea is to convince you to see how they, some ape-like ancestor, became us. Nova, becoming human. And that's why when you see science more so often, you don't feel like worshiping. It drags you down. But I'm here to tell you today, there was never a time where you were ever, ever becoming human. The Bible tells us that you were made fully functional, fully human, fully complete, and fully in the image of God right from the very beginning. And when we think about that and we consider it very, very carefully, it will lead us to worship. So this was examining the complexities of your human body. I can't cover all of the parts on your body in this sermon, and you really wouldn't want me to anyway. But we can cover this one. Hand. Is this a uniquely human capability? Creatures have hands, but what we do with our hands is unique. And even though they're going to try to tell you you descended from an ape-like ancestor, because you can see up on the screen you have similar bones in your hand to other creatures, therefore that's definitive evidence that you evolved, right? Wrong. Better yet, talk to the person who says that and ask them, show me a paper describing the evolution of bones. That's a great one. You realize there's more information to make a bone, there's more information to make a cell than there is to plan the entire city around here, including this building. And even though we have a lot of similarities, we have a lot of dissimilarities. And one of the greatest dissimilarities we have is not just strictly in the anatomy of our hand, it's the fact that we have so much brain power dedicated to moving our hands. And I'm not talking about just sheer intellectual capacity. I'm talking about the power of your brain that's dedicated to moving your body in incredibly athletic ways that really make the athletics of animals look, look simple in many ways. So you have all of this just to move your hand, and you have incredible design in the anatomy of your hand. So what you see there up on the screen is what your hand looks like if your skin is all gone. But you see incredible design in that. You see multiple muscles. In fact, there's over 22 muscles in your hand giving you the ability not just to squeeze things, but to take your fingers, bend them like this, bend them like this, pull them out. You can use your hand if you want. Bend them over like this. Do all kinds of things with your hands. You'll see tendons that are there, tendons that are attached right here up to the very tips of your fingers. And so some of you in this room can take the tips of your fingers, hold the, hold the other one straight and bend just the tips pastor's wife could do this better than anybody I've seen on the planet on that. I mean, she bends them down like little talons on there in her hand. It's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. And she's not a mutant on that. So uh, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. And then look at the tendon for the middle bone. Here's the middle bone. 
That tendon comes up, and in perfect design, it splits right in two, attaches to a capsule so that the tendon to the tip of the bone goes right through it. Intricate design in so many, many ways in order for us to move our hands, giving us the ability to do all kinds of grips, like the power grip. Humans have a very good power grip. The average guy can squeeze between 100 to 150 pounds of force in their hands. But as they hold things, and as we hold things, like I'm holding this slide advancer in my hand, I'm not even thinking about it, but it would want to twist and turn on all of the axes. But my brain is detecting all of that with my fingers and the sensors, and it controls it. And we can do incredible things with our hands. I, I sit there and watch people taking notes, and some, some people take their pencil, and they just like, boom, 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 spin around, spin around, spin around in their hands. Just incredible control of your fingers in order for you to do those kinds of grips. And your brain is controlling it for every finger individually so that you can actually go down and you can pick up a paint can with several fingers, grab your rush, brush, grab the rag, grab all these other kinds of things with your fingers. We can pick them up with both hands, set them down, move them back and forth, and your brain is controlling all of those movements as well. The biggest miracle I've ever seen is gals leaving Walmart with white bags, like dangling from every single finger on their hand. It's not just one bag, it's like three bags on per finger. And they just move them around, they go to the back of their car, they hook them up. That's just, just an incredible feat to do that and carry the bags. So it's just quite remarkable. But then the dexterity doesn't stop there. You could actually hold a sledgehammer with several fingers, but with these other fingers, have precise control to pluck up a potato chip and hold it in your hand. And if you're from Texas, you hold them at the same time and put it in your mouth. But that's what you do. Just incredible control over your fingers. Not just the power grip, but the micro grip is what humans really, really excel at. The micro grip between your index finger and the tip of your thumb. The tip of your thumb is really is what's giving you the control. It's giving you the control that's there so that if you need to have your eye operated on by an eye surgeon, they can look under a microscope, make a little incision to do things, and then suture it up with suture finer than a human hair. Now, how in the world do they do that? Well, on the tip of the thumb, there is a tendon that's attached, just like we said, goes all the way down to a muscle in your forearm, and there is so much brain power dedicated to that one muscle, that one muscle that your brain can activate one single muscle fiber at a time, at a time, giving the tip of your thumb the ability to move with just seven one-hundredths of an ounce of force and detect that as well. And what's quite fascinating about this muscle is that humans have it, but chimps, gorillas, orangutans, none of them even have this muscle. Now, that's kind of an evolutionary enigma. How did that muscle just pop into existence from our ape-like ancestor when we were becoming us? On all of that, wow, quite incredible. So we have a power grip, we have a micro grip, we can move our fingers in really, really, really fine ways, and we control them in just incredible ways. How do we do that? Well, on the picture again on the screen, you see all of those tendons attached to your fingers. Of course, they actuate your fingers. They do, they do without that. But they are also transmitting 
the stress and the force back to those muscles. And as that information is transmitted back to the muscles, this is quite incredible. The muscles are programmed with logical mechanisms in them, giving them the ability to actually do a mathematical calculation, not in the brain, but in the muscle fiber itself. And as it does those mathematical calculations, little signals are sent to the muscle, opening gates, closing gates, turning switches on, turning switches off, giving you the ability to have incredibly fine control over the muscles because of the logic that is being performed in the muscle itself due to some incredible programming. And because they can turn on and off, on and off, really, really rapidly, giving you incredible control, you can use your hands in many, many different ways. You can use your hand like a hydraulic ram in order to crush things. I do that for my wife now and then just to show off. I'll say, babe, watch this. And I pick up a rock or something like that, and I just crush it in my hand, you know, <laughs> just, to, just to show off for her because I know wives like to see their husbands do that stuff, you know. They just like, oh, babe, I crushed this rock. And other times if she's not thoroughly impressed with that, I, I stand under a basketball hoop and I jump straight up and grab it on that and I just hang by my fingers and my fingers act like little springs on that. And that's because those muscles turn those things on and off, on and off. And maybe you take a big old hammer and you hit something. The vibration goes up the handle into your hand, but it gets dampened out right in your hand. How does it do that? Muscle switches, turning them on and off, on and off, on and off all the time. Some of us can pick up a mug without tipping it over and reach towards it and grab it and pick it up. In order to do that, your brain will upload and download three separate programs, the pinch, the pick, and the pick, all of those kinds of things. And it does that, and it changes those programs in 60 milliseconds. One-sixth of the time it takes you to blink your eye, drops one program, loads another. One or another. And right before you move it, 40 milliseconds before you ever touch that mug, it loads the program for pick. Don't you wish your computer could load programs like that? And that's just incredible control. Control that is, ex in other examples, you pick up an egg, squeeze it, 10 to 15 pounds of force. And for many of us, the moment we sense that eggshell start to crack, you could stop your finger motion in the thickness of an eggshell, one one-hundredth of an inch. And by the time your body detects that squeeze and the crack and sends a signal to stop, it's moving at a totally optimized system. That's just incredible performance that would take incredible engineering to program a robot in order to do all of those kinds of things. Now, how in the world are you going to learn about this? Are you going to remember everything I say? Some of you might. Most of you won't on that. So you see on the screen there a sign-up sheet for this magazine right here. I brought it up. Acts and Facts. This baby changed my life. I found this as a student at Moody Bible Institute when I was fully believing, even though I was saved, in evolution, and I read this baby, and it changed my life. And it can do the same for you, and you can pass it on to your kids and your grandkids, and they will tell you about the things, this magazine. And there's an article written by a genius in it every month on that that will keep you up to... That wasn't funny. That was the truth on that. 
that will keep you up to speed. So please sign up. It's totally free, totally free magazine every month. All right, let's go back to our hands. Now let's talk about speed. Seconds count in biology. A half second is actually really, really slow. In fact, a half second is how long it would have taken this forklift driver to hit his brakes while he's carrying a bomb when he realized there's no truck there to get it at the loading dock. A half a second is how long it took this gal to hit her brakes when she realized, wow, there's really an easier way to get on this boat on that. <laughs> and a half second is how long it would have taken this guy to hit his brakes when he recognized that's not the shortcut to the lake. And look with your highly designed peepers there. You'll see he's still in the cab of this truck right there. And as I said last time, he looks an awful lot like Terry Cruiser on that. <laughs> and this guy's going over to unhitch the boat on that. Wouldn't that be pretty good? Oh. So a half a second is really a long, long time in biology. So how do you get your hands and your fingers to move really, really fast like these young guys being cross-trained during the Great Depression for a new job as a typist, hoping to move their fingers really, really fast? Well, in order to do those kinds of things, your brain will develop what is called a forward plan. A forward plan where your brain is going to plan out finger motions a long time in advance, I'm talking about milliseconds in advance, prescribing when, where, how, duration, pressure, all of those kinds of variables, not just for your hand motion, but for each and every finger motion, for every one of those kinds of things. It's going to put that plan together, a forward plan. And the forward plan, what's interesting about it, is they become the basis for skilled learning so that you store these plans like a general plan in your brain, but the plan is always fresh with every single finger motion. Every finger motion. And because you're able to develop these plans, you could become a skilled typist. In fact, this could be you. And this gal, as she is learning to type, and not learning to type, as she actually does type, she looks at the page of what she's typing and she's taking in more letters than just the one that she wants to type. In fact, she's visually processing eight characters in advance of what she's going to type. And her brain is going to put together a forward plan, three characters in advance before she ever moves her fingers in anticipation of moving that finger. The keystrokes can be as low as 60 milliseconds apart, and they're fastest on fingers between on the opposing hands. And this is pretty incredible. And the world's fastest typist was able to type at a sustained rate of 160 words a minute for 60 minutes straight, hitting speeds of over 200 words a minute. And her brain is updating the plan with every single finger stroke. Wow, that's incredible performance and computing power. And she didn't fry out her brain or her hands. That's incredible finger speed. Well, not only are typists able to do that, really, really skilled pianists are able to do the same. In fact, really skilled pianists can play 20 to 30 notes a second, a second on their hand. And the time between the notes can be as little as 40 milliseconds apart. And there's no limit to the number of plans that she can store or he can store 
in their brain. In fact, there's really no known limit, as far as we know right now, to what you can store in your human brain. A year ago, I read an article that gave an estimate, an estimate of what the storage capacity of the human brain was. And at that time, you're not going to believe this, they estimated that the storage capacity of a human brain is equivalent to everything on the internet worldwide. Everything stored in every computer on every server around the world could be stored in your brain. And your brain runs on a power capacity of about 10 watts. Now, isn't that highly efficient? Highly efficient. But that's probably not right because two weeks ago, I read another paper that said that may not be right because every neuron in your brain is actually functioning like a mini computer. So the estimated storage capacity might have been off by a factor of 100. The Lord is incredible in what he designs and how he puts it in there and he runs it on such low power. And because we have that, we have just incredible capabilities with our hands. Hands to do things that no other creature does. Hands to express ourselves. Hands to be creative. Hands to even speak and talk. As you see this gal to my right sign, it's like looking at poetry in motion as she talks with your hands. And if you want to express your personal will, there's over a 90% chance that you will use this. You will use your hands. And the evolutionists at all of the major universities around the world do not have a clue of how this could have evolved. But since they can't tell us how it evolved, they believe they can tell us why it evolved. And so this paper came out several years ago. Look at the headline. Human hands evolved for fighting, study suggests. And it begins with this sentence. Human hands may have evolved their unique shape in order to better punch the living daylights out of competitors, a new study suggests, the ability to brutally club opponents. That's it? That's why this hand is here? To beat the living daylights out of my competitors? Really? Christians have a better explanation. We can replace that explanation with something very, very true. And that is our hands were given to us as a gift by the Lord to connect. Connect us with a lot of different things. Connect us with important things like lunch. <laughs> connect us with really cherished things like the Word of God. Reach out and connect us with each other. Connect us across generations, across any kind of barrier. And as you see that man, he picks up the hand of his wife and he wants to connect with her. He doesn't care what her hand looks like he cares who it's connected to and that's what is important to him we use our hands to connect our immaterial self with our material self as we look at ourselves in the mirror we touch our face with our fingers we touch our body with our hands there's something the immaterial real randy that is out there that has all these thoughts that it will exist and continue to exist long after this body is gone is somehow connected with this body and i use my fingers and my hands to know that the best. As you saw people today during the worship service, 
They raised their hands in praise to the Lord in an effort, in a symbolic effort, not just symbolic, it may be just totally genuine, to reach out and connect with the Lord Jesus Christ, their creator and their savior. They enable us to connect across every way to the world. It's not to punch their living daylights out. It's to reach out and connect with them where we love Jesus Christ and we love others. And we express that through our hands. And it doesn't just begin with adulthood. It actually begins even before we're born. And this is a picture of a little boy who has a spinal cord defect and he's still inside his mother's womb. This is her uterus right here. And a surgeon opened that up, made an incision in her uterus, operated on the boy's baby back with skilled fingers. And as the surgery was coming to an end and the anesthesia was wearing off, he reached his hand outside that incision and grabbed the finger of that surgeon. And that is what we have these hands for. They are a gift. They are a gift to us. They are a testimony and they're a witness to us. When you see this hand and you do what you do with it, you should praise the Lord and bless the Lord. And they're a testimony to his great engineering genius and his incredible wisdom. You remember at the beginning of this talk, I said, worship should be the normal response to science. And all I did was talk about some science here, but how many of you feel like saying, praise the Lord? We have a great, incredible Savior. Amen? Well, thank you so much for your attention. I turn it back over to Pastor.